The Alchemical Tech Revolution is sponsored by Spotify for podcasters. Hi, friends. This is Wayne McCroy, host of the Alchemical Tech Revolution podcast. Spotify for podcasters is now available for use by anyone out there who's interested in producing, monetizing, and distributing their podcast. You can have access to some of the best tools in the industry using Spotify for podcasters. Go to podcasters.spotify.com for more details. Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss Kabbalah. What is it? We hear this term thrown around a lot, and I'm sure some of us have some conceptions of what Kabbalah is. But with that being said, we're going to take a look at some of the basic principles involved with what is known as Kabbalah. It's kind of an introductory course here. In what is meant by the term, what's involved in it, and what it's talking about. Because we do hear a lot about Kabbalah, and many of the uh, teachings from these various secret schools are based upon some of these Kabbalic ideas. And we do hear the term thrown around a lot, and there are some distinctions to be made with the term Kabbalah itself, because it has numerous different spellings to it. And the spelling, of course, we're talking about tonight is the one that's spelled with a K. And there are variably spellings with a C and with a Q as well. And there are subtle nuances in the differences between these spellings in Kabbalah. But we're going to discuss from a book from a member in good standing of Theosophy. And his name was W.J. Colville. This book was written in 1916. And the title of the book that we're going to read from that will give you a basic introduction to the principles of Kabbalah. It's called Kabbalah, The Harmony of Opposites, a Treatise, Elucidating Bible Allegories and the Significance of Numbers. And as I said, this was published in 1916. And this guy was a member in good standing of the Theosophical Society. He espoused many theosophical beliefs and was very much a student of the occult, and Kabbalah. So that being the case, he put together this book to give a type of fundamental description of Kabbalah, what it means, what it's talking about, and some of the principles therein. And we're going to take a look at that tonight. And we're going to tell you what it is they're talking about when they're speaking of Kabbalah in some of these secret society groups, occult fraternities, mystery school teachings, 
These are the concepts to which they're speaking of, at least the basic ones, as far as the one that starts with the letter K goes. And this is an old Jewish tradition, the Kabbalah. Hebrew. There's other iterations and versions, like I said, that the spelling is slightly different, and there are subtle nuances and difference between them, whereas, for instance, Kabbalah, when it's spelled with a C, oftentimes refers to what's known as the phonetic Kabbalah, and this speaks of things like the green language, the mysteries, the language of the birds, language of the gypsies, all of these various things can be attributed to that, to the phonetic Kabbalah, as identified by one of the gentlemen who wrote in the introduction to Falconelli's Mystery of the Cathedrals. This is how he describes it as the phonetic Kabbalah. And there are distinctions, like I said, with the spelling of Kabbalah with the Q and the K as well. And this is primarily the K. This one's associated most with Hebrew or with the Jewish people, the Jewish magic. The Jewish voodoo, if you will. That's what some people refer to it as, Kabbalah, as the Jewish voodoo. Uh, I don't know if that's a fair distinction to give it, because it's not completely Jewish. Not completely Jewish in its usage, we should say. In its or origins, perhaps. But I think it even predates that. Let's be honest about it. So, at any rate, let's get into the reading here. So we're going to look at a general outline of Kabbalah. The best-known portion of Kabbalah is called Zohar, and the most widely circulated translations thereof are termed respectively the Book of Concealed Mystery, the Greater Holy Assembly, the Lesser Holy Assembly. The origin of the word Kabbalah is from the Hebrew Kibel, which is spelled Q-I-B-E-L, meaning to receive. And I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So notice the Hebrew word that this claims that it comes from is Kibel, which means to receive. And this is spelled with a Q, and I think this is one of the distinctions wherein there's some crossover in the meanings here, because from other sources you find Kabbalah, spelled with a K, derives from a Hebrew word which means tradition, not to receive. So there's some variances here, and I think that would probably more closely associate with the version spelled with a Q, but the author here attributes, attributes it to the spelling here with the K as well. I don't think he makes the distinction between the various spellings of the word Kabbalah because there are numerous correct spellings and they're not all referencing the exact same thing. There's, like I said, there's subtle nuance involved there, but it does reference some of the same core principles and that's what we'll get into here. But uh, So he claims here it comes from the Hebrew word Kibel, spelled Q-I-B-E-L, meaning to receive. Let's continue on. The 70 elders in Israel, constituting the Sanhedrin, the highest of all councils which held its deliberations within the precincts of the temple in Jerusalem, according to an ancient tradition, received their esoteric information from a school of angels in paradise whose representatives on earth these 70 wise men considered themselves to be. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So if there's something you didn't know about the Sanhedrin, mentioned in the Bible, <laughs> then now you know something a little bit more about this concept of the Sanhedrin, and we've heard of this 
They think themselves to be the earthly representatives of these angels, these angelic beings of paradise. And they see themselves as being the sole arbiters of the esoteric in this tradition. So, that being the case, we understand a little something more, and understand also, if you're familiar with some of the Bible texts and stories, the Pharisees were also considered to be co-equal with Sanhedrin, or members of the Sanhedrin. So these people esteem themselves above the rest, seeing themselves as the arbiters between man and God. Let's continue on here. It was in the midst of the greatest teachers in Israel that when a boy, Jesus, was discovered at the time of his bar mitzvah, 12 or 13 years of age, according to the testimony of the New Testament. Today, it is not difficult for people to readily understand in what high esteem these elders and their teachings must have been held by devoted Israelites, who sincerely believed them to constitute a company of exceptionally holy persons, distinguished above all others by reason of remarkable wisdom and exceptional purity of life. The language of the Kabbalah is partly Hebrew, partly Chaldean. The 22 letters constituting the alphabets of these two languages are interpreted by Kabbalists in a manner to greatly interest the many at present who attach much importance to numbers in some mystical and symbolical significance. Letters and numbers are one in these ancient languages. And it says here the following table shows at a glance the Roman characters, which are the equivalents of the Hebrew and Chaldee. And it gives a list of the letters. It also gives the Hebrew and Chaldee, the Roman letters, which we're familiar with, the significance and the number with which they're associated with. And this is an interesting outline because this, this has some very interesting connotations attached to it when we look at things in the modern era. And if we understand that there's Kabbalic encoding in certain things, if you see a certain letter or number, you could understand something more about it by associating the significance with it, with this chart, or the number that goes with it. So maybe we'll go through and just identify each one here. It won't take long to do, and it's an interesting crossover here. So keep this in mind. So the first one, and we'll just we'll read the Hebrew letter first, and then we'll go with the Roman letter that we're familiar with in our modern alphabet. So Aleph, or letter A, its significance is the ox. The number associated with it is one. Beth, or B, the significance is house, number two. Gimel, G, camel, the number three. Daleth, D, door, and four. He, which would be the H, and that's associated with a window, the number five. A vow associated with the letter V, which is associated with a peg or a nail and the number six. Zion, the Z, is associated with the weapon or the sword or the number seven. And I'm going to pause for a moment. And perhaps if you've listened to Crow Triple Seven for any length of time, you understand the idea of Ion Zion, the weapon, the mind weapon. Well, Zion, the number seven, also represented by the letter Z, 
means weapon or sword. So there you go. That's what Zion is with the Hebrew letters associated with the alphabet we're familiar with today. So the letter Z, number 7, these things could be associated with a weapon. We'll continue on. The Hebrew letter would be Heth, which in Roman characters or modern language here in our modern alphabet would be a CH. And that associates with enclosure or fence and the number 8. Teth, the letter T, representing the serpent and the number 9. Yod, the letter I, representing the hand and the number 19. Remember that, 19. Yod. So that's an important distinction there because we see the number 19 an awful lot. Kaf, the letter K, representing the palm of the hand, the number 20. Lamed, the letter L. The ox goad, the number 30. Mem, the letter M, which represents water, and the number 40. We're almost done. Bear with me. We'll get through these. And remember, there's some significance here. You could start to make some connections when you realize these. The next one is Nun, the letter N, which its significance is the fish, and its number, 50. Samuk, the letter S, which signifies a prop or support, and the number 60. Next is Ayan, Ayan, which represents the letter O, and its significance is the I, and its number is 70. So I'm going to pause again. So Ayan, that's 70. Zion, that's 7. Ayan Zion. Crow translates it as the mind weapon. This translates it as the eye weapon. The image, if you will, if you want to look at some of the things I've been talking about for a long time. The image that it represents, and it does affect the mind. So this would be an image presented in weaponized fashion, to the to the eye, to make an impact on the mind. So there you go, I am Zion, the mind weapon. Let's continue on. Pay, the letter P, which represents the mouth, and the number 80. Tzadi, which represents in the Roman characters, TZ, which is fish hook, or the number 90. Kof, with a, spelled with a Q, and it represents the letter Q. And that represents the back of the head. And that's also represented by the number 100. So I'm going to pause for a second there. So uh, any of those people that are following this whole Q phenomenon, understand that that represents the back of the head. <laughs> so that should be, that's it's a kind of a, a cryptic way of saying the, they want to be in the back of your mind, Q. They want you to think that maybe they're responsible for things in the background, as it were. This whole Q phenomenon that's gone on. So there's a significance there as well, and it's represented by the number 100. Let's continue on. Next is Resh, the letter R, which represents the head and the number 200. Shin, represented by SH. The tooth, represented by the number 300. And finally, Tau, represented by TH, and its significance is the sign of the cross, and it's represented by the number 400. So let's continue on reading from there now that we've covered those briefly here. 
And these do have some significance in value when you're trying to translate things that may look kind of cabalic to you or you have an inkling that there may be some kind of cabalic encoding in something that they've done. If you could identify these letters and numbers, this kind of thing, you could learn a little something about about this thing. So, for example, Ion Zion, the number 77, as Crow talks about, Ion Zion, this represents the letters O and Z. Oz, right? Oz, the mind weapon. Do you think it's a coincidence that they chose the name Oz, that Frank Baum chose the name Oz for this land of mystery that affects the human mind in the way that it does, and this whole narrative, these books, written by Frank Baum, by the way, who was a high-ranking Freemason, they were written with the intention to be mind-control devices of sorts, used for mind-control programming templates. So the Wizard of Oz, as it were, was specifically written in this way, and that's encoded right in the name Oz, the Ion Zion the mind weapon, or the weapon of the eye, the image. The image presented to the man, the mind of man. But let's continue on here. As the same rule applies to Greek, in which language also every number is a word, and each letter has its special numerical value, it is not difficult to understand, in the light of this fact, many otherwise obscure, if not altogether unintelligible statements in the Apocalypse and other symbolic scriptures, which appear to the majority of readers to be far more like puzzles than revelations. We notice how the number of the beast is given as 666, and how largely 7 and 12 enter into all descriptions of whatsoever denotes or attains perfection. Kabbalistic usage suggests an original universal symbolical language which could be understood by all initiates, as Masonic emblems are understood by Freemasons throughout the world. To the flippant mind, the employment of symbols seems unnecessarily confusing and suggests the idea of some alleged mystery being hidden from the multitude purposely by hieroglyphists who concealed their knowledge under a veil of allegory which the masses could not penetrate. It may be a fact that certain secret societies have often done and are still doing that very thing, but the primal origin of a sign language is not to be found in any desire for concealment, but, on the contrary, to afford a means for worldwide intelligible intercommunication between all the initiated. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So essentially, right there, they admit... These emblems, these symbols, they're used as a in universal communication tool between all these different secret societies, all the different initiates of the different orders. They all understand some basic concepts about these symbols, these signs and symbols, these numbers, these attributions made. It's inherent. They teach this in these various schools. It's a type of intercommunication, and it does conceal the true nature of the symbol, the true nature of what's being told or seen here, underneath the exoteric version, in an esoteric form. But it's out there, in the open, for anybody to recognize who has eyes to see. 
That's what he's claiming here. This is a, a proven commodity at right here. Colville identifies right here that this has been done throughout all of time. It's something they do within the secret schools. And that there are secret societies that do keep these things very hidden. Although the information could be found by anybody at this point who is interested enough in learning how to read the symbols. So... It's a universal language that predates these secret schools, and it represents, it hits upon archetypal ideas, and we've talked about this before. But here is the admission that this is exactly how they do things in these secret schools. They use these symbols, they employ these symbols so that they can understand it. Anybody who's been initiated into one of these secret occult fraternities or these brotherhoods, these secret societies, will understand some portion of the messaging of the symbol and be able to recognize some of these things if they've studied enough, if they're advanced enough in the order to know what to look for. They'll be able to identify different numbers, letters, symbols, and attributions, as we had just outlined in that basic list where you can associate the letter, the number, and attribution to it. And they interchange these things sometimes to keep it hidden from public scrutiny and to also add a layer of plausible deniability to things. But if you know how to read between the lines and recognize the symbols being used, you get the message. And that's the whole point here that Colville makes. And he's pointing this out. And this is something that is acknowledged in the secret societies. And it's out there in the public view. This is how they do things. They hide it in plain sight. It's been out there this whole time. It's just most people don't know how to read the symbol because... The secret society groups have taken hold of this knowledge and hidden it from the public or transformed the mindset of the public into thinking this type of way of thinking is archaic or backwards or nonsensical or silly. Things like astrology are silly, nonsensical, worthless, backwards. These are things primitive cultures did, but we don't do that today. We're much too advanced. We have too much scientific knowledge. We're way too smart to think there's any meaning in any of that stuff. Any of that mumbo-jumbo. Why would they do that? They, they won't do that. That's nothing that gets done. They don't hide intention in different numbers, letters, and communications in this way. Well, of course they do. It's, it's admitted right here. In one of their own books, this is how they do things. But I digress on that point. We've been pointing that out to people for a long time. But here it is from the horse's mouth. I'm not just saying it. They say it themselves. This is how they do things. So when you see these news stories with all these weird numbers that always seem to crop up and these weird associations that always seem to crop up, these symbols, you know whose fingerprints are all over that. You know there's an esoteric communication going on there. You know this is a nudge-nudge, wink-wink moment for those behind the scenes in positions of power, saying, hey, look what we just did. You know what it's about then. 
You know it's a mind control programming behind it in most cases. And this is what we deal with, right? And, and this is the whole point in, in reading through these types of books. So we could get to the core of where this information comes from. And it comes right out of their own mouths, folks. It's, it's all admitted to. It's out in the open. People just don't take the time to scrutinize it. Or well, oftentimes people will have their cognitive dissonance. And they won't want to actually see the pattern that emerges when you start being able to identify it. It's, it's certainly there. It's, it becomes pattern recognition once you're familiar with this stuff. If you had a base familiarity with the Kabbalah, with these systems, with just even those basic things we just named about the letter, the number, the, the hidden significance behind it, to understand that, that gives you a whole new levels of meaning to the things you look at if you scrutinize them enough. If you train your mind to be able to read into it and say, okay, I see these number combinations, I see these letter combinations, I see these symbolic forms being represented, what's the message here? What's really going on? And you can understand what the intention behind it is a little better. And maybe you could understand the direction it's trying to lead your mind. So, that being the case, that's enough of me babbling. Let's continue on with the reading, because there's a lot more good information in here to cover. The need for a universal language is one of the most pressing requirements of the present day. For with the rapid coming together of peoples long separated by natural as well as by racial barriers only very recently overcome, we cannot much longer continue a multiplicity of tongues rendering some of us practically dumb in the presence of neighbors with whom we desire to work in the friendliest accord. What certain mystic confraternities long ago succeeded in doing within their own sacred precincts, we must yet come to do on a much larger and far more public scale. How far a study of Kabbalah may help in this direction may be somewhat open may be a somewhat open question, but it stands to reason that if we succeed in throwing light upon the inner meaning of venerated scriptures in a manner to show that there is a hidden wisdom of which all true religionists are partakers, in consequence of their common scriptural heritage, we shall have done something definite and substantial in the way of bringing venerators of different Bibles and professors of diverse creeds very much nearer together than they have yet been generally brought. It is well known among students of occultism and mysticism that there has always been a sacred and secret church within a church in Christendom, sometimes called the Church of the Holy Grail. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. This is another tenet of all the various secret society groups. And this is just one variation of it. He calls it the church within the church, the church of the Holy Grail. Well, this speaks, of course, to the inner circle that interpenetrates all these different secret society groups and also has its tentacles in every organized religion in the world, every one, bar none, without exception. And it all relates back to some of these same things, these same principles, the same people behind it all. So the Church of the Holy Grail, this is an allegorical name 
representing what is acknowledged, what was acknowledged in some previous readings we've done as what they call the Great White Brotherhood, or the Illuminati, if you will. The, this is the, the inner circle, the control structure behind it all that disseminates the ideas. And is at the topmost levels of all these various things. And he calls it the secret church within a church. And he says that's in Christendom. So this would relate to the Rosicrucians, largely, is what he's speaking of here. Because when you hear about the church within a church in Christendom, when they call it Christendom, by and large, they're almost always referencing the Rosicrucians. And we've done some in-depth studies on Rosicrucian doctrine and how it interrelates with theosophical doctrine, how all these things interrelate in many ways. They all teach the same things. I can't emphasize this enough. It's all the same things taught it through all these secret groups. And it all just gets disseminated in slightly different terms through all of them. And they all put their own special twist on it and claim to be the sole arbiter of the truth of the meaning of it all. All these different groups, they all do it. And at the topmost levels of all of them, it's the same small group of people. <laughs> so it's all the same thing. So when you understand how to do a a type of, uh, I don't know, study into all these different secret groups, you begin to find all the common denominators and all the connecting points, and they all connect at the top, you see. The top of the pyramid. And this is how all these things get disseminated in the way they do. And it's an astounding thing to look at. But let's continue on here. So he says here, he left off, he said, the Church of the Holy Grail, which is, you know, he calls it the church within a church. The secret church within the church. Let's put it that way. So now he goes on and he continues. He says, in Jewry, the equivalent of this has existed through the ages by means of a Kabbalah. Between the explicit and the implicit of all well-defined creeds and ceremonies, there is an immense practical difference, amounting even to the tremendous distinction between the letter which killeth and the spirit which maketh alive. By means of Kabbalah, we can easily show that there is no radical opposition of ceremonialism to mysticism, and that the sacrificial system is essentially symbolical only, and intended to dramatically illustrate great truths of universal import, which are allegorically portrayed in a record of seemingly external rites and ceremonies. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So, what he's saying here is all these rituals and rites that these secret societies perform, that people perform through these various religious contexts throughout all these ages, all of this stuff. He said, you need to understand, it's all only supposed to be meant allegorically. You're not supposed to actually do this. And this was taken to an extreme by some, and they actually perform these rituals. It's supposed to be an allegorical teaching. The, the ritual or the rite represented in the form that it is, is supposed to be understood allegorically and not actually performed in that way, or the sacrifice, the sacrificial things thereof. He says that sacrificial system, it's essentially symbolic only, he says. It's only supposed to be symbolic. 
But yet, what do we see round about the world? All of these things are performed literally. Literally. Not only within like external religions, as they were in the past, but within these secret society groups too, within the occult fraternities, those seeking magical type power, they'll perform these type of rituals for real and expect some type of result therefrom. Even though it says here that this is one of the core secrets of the Kabbalic teachings, is that all this is supposed to be understood allegorically, not done for real, not follow it to the letter, but understand the concept it's conveying to you. Then you begin to understand how many of these things have been perverted through time and inverted and the opposite of what the teachings truly one at one time may have been and how they may have been good for mankind. But no, that's not the case now. They've twisted these things all out of shape and made them into something they were never intended to be. And now we have the things that are taught by the secret schools today. And we have the world in the shape that it is in because these people who run the place here the, at the topmost levels of the power structure are these dark occultists who run things, who always take things too far to the extreme and to the inversion of what the natural order intends. They always do. It's their, it's their game. It's the way they are. They're a death cult. Always about the death-based ideas rather than the life-based ones. This is how they operate. So now this guy recognizes that it's supposed to be just a symbolic thing, an allegorical thing. But that's not what we have, is it? That's not what gets largely shown in the world as we see it. So at any rate, we can understand a few things based upon that. And I always tell people, you do have to take a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt because there's no way to really prove nor disprove any of it. But here's the thing, all right? These same people, these same secret society groups that will teach you this, it's all allegorical, it's all symbolic. They're also the ones that'll teach you that if you follow their teachings, you can achieve these mystical psychic powers of clairvoyance and have all these mystical, magical powers and of perception and know things and communicate with these ascended masters in other planes. So the ones that claim that, okay, it's all symbolic, it's all just allegory, in the same breath they'll tell you that they alone understand the supernatural aspect of it. So they openly deny the supernatural aspect of it by saying, no, it's all allegory. But at the same token, they'll claim that they alone have this supernatural power or access to these supernatural things or understanding of these supernatural things. So they're lying on both sides here. I find this distinction always important when you look at this. What these secret societies will teach you. In the lower levels, they tell you that all these things you see in the Bible, it's all just allegory. Right? All these teachings, it's all allegory. Mythology, all allegory. 
nothing to it, no such real thing as magic per se or anything of the sort. Uh, all these natural energies that they, they talk about, these elementals and things like that, these intelligences that guide things, all allegory. That's what they tell you in the lower levels. But when you get to the higher levels, they tell you it's magic, right? They tell you it's it's mystical power that can be achieved by the illumined, by the enlightened. If you progress far enough in the school, you could become an ascended master. You could transcend this place. You could become godlike and have these supernatural powers and abilities that they told you earlier don't really exist, that it's all allegory. So you see how they, they got you coming and going at both ends here. It's all gaslighting. That's what they do. And I'm not saying there's no such thing as maybe supernatural abilities or some such thing. I think that there might be some evidence that there is, but uh, I don't think these people <laughs> have anything to do with that. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I mean, by and large, what they teach you is a load of crap <laughs> with this stuff. Most of the time. And there may be some core truths to some of it, but they're not telling you if they do know, and I doubt very highly that they do know. I think oftentimes it's just their pride and their ego that gets in the way once they've advanced so far within these secret schools and they've gotten so twisted and involved with them and they see all the dark things that have gone on and they're too far down the path to back out now because they take all kind of blood oaths to be involved in these fraternities and oaths to be loyal to the fraternity and oaths to be loyal to their brothers and help them when in need that it's too late for them to back out so they just go along to get along and keep their mouths shut and string along the lower level initiates the same way they were strung along maybe try to make you believe they know something you don't or have some mystical ability that you don't and some of the things that they do teach, like I said, they do have some value to them. Like you could learn some important things about natural laws in this place, how the natural world truly works, about these natural energies that are inherent around us, these things we've been taught to think are silly, like planetary alignments and stuff like that, and the effects that it has here on Earth. And they really do. I mean, there's energetic principles that can be leveraged in this way. And some of these people know a little something about this and do manipulate it in ways to benefit themselves, keep it hidden from the public. So there is some core of knowledge and truth that can be garnered through some of these teachings. But at the end of the day, a lot of it's laced with poison, this type of poison, where they lead your mind down the trail, dangling that carrot in front of you always, keeping you following along thinking that at some point maybe you could attain this secret ancient wisdom that, well, let's be honest, they don't really have either, but they're just stringing you along to make you think they do. It's controlling other people. That's the biggest secret at the tops of all of these different fraternities and, and brotherhoods and secret society groups. That's what it's about, controlling people. Manipulating people to perform whatever agendas you see fit or the people at the top of the power structure see fit. That's by and large what's been done. It's a lesson in human psychology, largely, when we look at it. But I'm not denying that there may be some mystical things that go on or supernatural type things, energies and that kind of thing. And I do largely suspect and have reasons to believe that 
Much of what's done here is guided by spiritual forces or beyond human intelligences in many regards. But with that being said, nobody really knows for certain what goes on at the tippy-topmost levels of these secret groups that run things. Or who's really the one in charge. I mean, we have our suspicions. And like I said, I think it's a, a spiritual component that operates at the top and directs. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I've kind of strayed off of the little path here that we were talking about. But it's all important. It's important stuff to, to talk about and, and maybe think about. But let's continue on here. So we left off where they talk about the allegorically portrayed rites and ceremonies. So he says, We are not attempting to convey the idea that literal sacrifices were not offered in the temple at Jerusalem, but we do insist that there was always an esoteric party in Israel, which seemingly disregarded the letter because its members clearly perceived the spiritual significance enclosed within it. Between the esoteric and exoteric schools of interpretation, there is always a meeting place, and one not difficult to discover. But though the esoteric party always knows this, the exoteric party frequently denies it. The chief difference between them is because the esoteric is essentially immeasurably broader, and in all ways far more comprehensive than the exoteric. Literal forms and distinctions are underlooked rather than overlooked by Kabbalists, and by underlooking we mean looking within, while overlooking may be simply disregarding or excusing. To the Kabbalist, as to all Israelites, there is but one supreme being. And then he gives a quote here. It says, Here, Israel, the Eternal is our God, the Eternal is one, end quote, is the foundation stone and universal confession of faith in Israel, but how widely different may the God idea in the minds of different classes of equally avowed monotheists? We all know fairly well, if we read even contemporary literature only and listen to contemporary preaching. It is claimed by some respectable schools of occultists that a large portion of Kabbalistic teaching is traceable to Egyptian sources, and that the treasures which the Israelites took out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus were spiritual and intellectual far more than material. Be this as it may, a study of comparative language and philology soon rewards the impartial student with the welcome discovery that all systems of religion and all languages have largely a common origin. It may therefore prove eventually impossible to assign any single tongue or system uniquely exalted position. The Kabbalah deals with cosmology rather than with cosmogony, i.e., it attempts to deal explicitly with the operation of distinctly spiritual forces working behind the screen, which veils the divine workshop and the workers therein from physical observation. The various Sephiroth, by whom the worlds are brought into existence and perpetually maintained, are variously regarded by different interpreters as simply distinctly distinguishable attributes of one supreme creator and as distinct hierarchies or companies of celestial intelligences, all working out the plan and purpose of the supreme one. 
It is worthy of note that Professor Alfred Russell Wallace, in his extremely valuable scientific work, The World of Life, though he was a naturalist and a foremost evolutionist, teaches a doctrine of companies of angels so near to the teachings of Kabbalah as to be perfectly reconcilable therewith. Wallace was the protagonist among British evolutionists of a school of scientific thought which furnishes a bond of union between materialism and spiritualism by showing how necessary is the idea of involution as a basis for a reasonable view of evolution. The stupid use of the word evolution, as though it were explanatory of everything, has been shown up to the fullest extent by Wallace, though he was the contemporary discoverer with Charles Darwin of those very facts in natural science which led to the acceptance of the evolutionary theory throughout the Western Hemisphere during the latter part of the 19th century. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see this Wallace guy was a contemporary of Darwin, helped formulate this theory of evolution, but he also recognized the theory of involution, which is significant to the secret schools here. It's the opposite of evolution. It's about changing or transforming yourself inwardly, right? So he, he recognizes this distinction, but uh, he kind of separates from Darwin on some of the thought here. And we see how evolution's been adopted and how it leads people more towards materialism. It doesn't actually reconcile with spiritualism in many regards here. But uh, let's continue with the reading here. The following quotation from the famous Dr. Ginsburg's essay on the Kabbalah is well worthy of serious reflection. This learned author defining Kabbalah says, quote, A system of religious philosophy, or more properly, of theosophy, which not only exercised for hundreds of years an extraordinary influence on the mental development of a people so shrewd as the Jews, but has captivated the minds of some of the greatest thinkers in Christendom in the 16th and 17th centuries, claims the greatest attention of both the philosopher and the theologian, end quote. This scholar then proceeds to mention a number of the prominent men of distinction in various fields of learning who were staunch adherents to Kabbalah, among them Raymond Lully, Cornelius Henry Agrippa, John Baptist von Helmont, Robert Flood, and Dr. Henry Moore, all of whom, and many others, were among the profoundest scholars of their day. The claims of Kabbalah, he contends, were by no means exclusively confined to the literary men and philosophers. Poets, too, have found in its ample material an inspiration to the exercise of their utmost genius. For, as Dr. Ginsburg enthusiastically exclaims, quote, How can it be otherwise with a theosophy, which we are assured was born of God in paradise, was nursed and reared by the choicest of the angelic hosts in heaven, and only held converse with the holiest men of man's children upon the earth. End quote. The story of Kabbalah is intensely fascinating and even awe-inspiring, for it is claimed that God first taught it to a select company of angels who formed a theosophic school in paradise. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So who says this? Where did they get this information from? <laughs> this is what you have to wonder. This is what's taught by the theosophists now. Keep in mind. So that God was the first one and to teach theosophy, right? 
He was the first to teach it to a select company of angels, and they formed a theosophic school in paradise. <laughs> and, and we're taking their word for this, right? Because how, how would they possibly know this? Who taught this? Where did this teaching come from? But this is what they taught, or still probably teach within the theosophical alignment of things. These angelic beings, these hierarchies, as they were, in this Kabbalic type interpretation here, they are the ones who, I guess, taught man theosophy now. We'll, we'll, we'll see what he says here. So let's read that again. So the story of Kabbalah is intensely fascinating and even awe-inspiring. For it is claimed that God first taught it to a select company of angels who formed a theosophic school in paradise. After the fall, the angels graciously communicated this celestial doctrine to the disobedient children of earth to furnish the protoplasts, or projectors of systems, with the means of returning to their pristine nobility and felicity. The record of the migration of the heavenly doctrine tells us that it was originally given to Adam, not a single individual, but as Swedenborg had said, a church or company of persons of a certain type bound in a particular fellowship. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So they're claiming Adam. This, too, is just a representation, a representative, symbolic picture, an allegory. It represented a group of people when the fall took place. This secret group, or I shouldn't say secret, but this this theosophical group formed of angels in paradise. They brought the doctrine to man, the Kabbalah, this, this doctrine taught to them by God. This is the claim in theosophy and some of the Kabbalic teachings. So it came from God, it was taught to the angels, and the angels then taught it to fallen man. They waited till man fell to teach it to him. Why? You have to ask why with something like that, but let's go ahead and continue. So this is from Swedenborg, okay? Swedenborg claims Adam was not a single individual, but a company of persons or a particular fellowship or church or a particular group of people, as it were. So let's continue on. So it says, From Adam it passed to Noah, Again, a company, not a single individual. Then to Abraham, who took it to Egypt, where he allowed a portion of it to ooze out. From Egypt, it traveled in some measure to several other lands, so that eventually various Oriental nations possessed some portion of it in their philosophies. It is recorded of Moses, who was learned in all Egyptian wisdom, that though he gained his first knowledge of the sacred teaching in the land of his birth, he learned still more of it during the period of wandering in the wilderness. It is further claimed that through his possession of this sublime doctrine, Moses was able to settle all manner of disputes which arose among the people in the course of their desert journeyings. Throughout the entire forty years of the journey between Egypt and Palestine, it is stated that the great lawgiver was in constant communion with one of the angels who constituted the theosophic school in paradise, and that he conveyed the truths communicated from heaven through the medium of four of the books of the Pentateuch, but withheld all such teaching from Deuteronomy. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the claim is, was one of these angels who spoke to Moses. Not God Almighty himself, who gave him the Ten Commandments and 
gave him direction, who conveyed the information to him, who he stayed in constant communication with. One of these angels that was part of this theosophic school in paradise. So this is the claim being made here. Let's continue on. According to the same tradition, Moses initiated the 70 original elders of the Sanhedrin into the mysteries he had received from the angels, and they in turn taught them to pupils who in due course became their successors. Of all who were initiated, it is said that David and Solomon were the most deeply versed. As the doctrine was originally communicated by oral instruction only, there was no written Kabbalah till a much later date, about the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, when Shimeon ben Yochai dared to write it. Subsequently, his son, Rabbi Eleazar, and his secretary, Rabbi Abba, together with several of his disciples, collated his treatises and out of them composed the book called Zohar, which means splendor, which is the great storehouse of Kabbalism. The Kabbalah is usually classed under four heads called respectively practical, literal, unwritten, and dogmatic. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So let's recap. So allegedly, Kabbalah was first taught by God the Creator himself to several of these angelic beings who formed a theosophic school and I find it interesting they formed a theosophic school, uh, which purports to, you know, the, the teachings of the Theosophical Society, Theosophy. They formed this theosophical school in paradise prior to the fall of man. And then when man fell, they decided, let's go share this knowledge with the fallen man, which was not Adam, by the way. Adam was not one person, nor was Noah, etc., etc. It was a group of people, according to this teaching. So they were taught the Kabbalah by the angelic beings. And this was passed down orally, only orally, through the years, all the way down through Moses and beyond, to David and Solomon, and all the way down to Simeon ben Yochaya, who dared to write it down. And this is the first written record of Kabbalah. You see, this is according to their own teachings here. So they composed the, the Zohar. And they separated into four categories now. And we're going to get into the four categories here. So the Kabbalah is usually classified under four heads called, respectively, Practical, Literal, Unwritten, and Dogmatic. Practical Kabbalah deals with ceremonial magic and gives much information regarding talismans. Literal Kabbalah is divided into three parts known as Gematria, Notarikon, and Tamura. Gematria is based on the relative numerical value of words. Notarikon is a title suggestive of the Latin word notarius, meaning a shorthand writer, and the contents justify the appellation. Tamura means permutation. The methods employed for arriving at the value of words are various and intricate, so much so that it requires great patience and perseverance to work out the examples. The dogmatic Kabbalah contains the specific doctrine and is less of a puzzle than the foregoing. 
It is, however, by no means easy reading and far too mysterious to awaken much response from any others than special students who love to delve deeply into the profound spiritual mysteries. The principal doctrines relate to the nature and attributes of the supreme being, cosmogony, creation of angels and men, destiny of men and angels, nature of the soul, nature of angels, demons, and elementals, import of the revealed law, transcendental symbolism of numerals, peculiar mysteries contained in Hebrew letters, equilibrium of contraries, on every one of these erudite topics, minute information is offered, and when one has attempted to grasp even some small portion of the lofty inclusion, or inculcation, sorry, some small portion of the lofty inculcation, there certainly follows a sense of sublime majesty and of glorious purpose in life intensely exhilarating. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Glorious purpose. Have you heard this in some Marvel Studios? project before the term glorious purpose mumbled by Loki <laughs> and you thought it was just a clever line in a movie right it may be reasonably concluded that the Kabbalah teaches that the attainment of equilibrium is the goal toward which we are all progressing and some authorities hesitate not to state that such is the original meaning of taking up the cross and following a master None can dispute the self-evident fact that the cross, as a sacred emblem, is found all over the world and in connection with civilizations antedating by many thousands of years the beginning of the Christian era. In Kabbalah, we have an attempted solution of the mighty problems of our existence, past, present, and to come. Whether so complicated and profoundly mysterious a composition will ever play a prominent part in religious unification or not is an open question, but it may certainly be fairly regarded as a storehouse of information calculated to set thinking deeply all students who have the disposition to examine it, guiding them along a path which, if faithfully followed, cannot be led to the discovery of foundation principles upon which coming generations may erect a temple of universal faith and worship. So I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we see there's various classes here of Kabbalah, these four different practices. Practical Kabbalah, literal Kabbalah, unwritten Kabbalah, and dogmatic Kabbalah. And there's various things here in which we see symbology used notably gematria notarikon and tamura these three words talk about a type of reading of meaning into numbers and letters and symbols here permutations of symbols and that these methods in doing so could be quite varied quite intricate sometimes complicated and a lot of it has to do with looking at word origins. Language and religion all have common roots. That's what the claim is here. And sometimes by delving deeply into the words, the meanings, the original meanings of the words, the etymology of words, we can arrive at a further understanding of the symbolic representation being made thereof. This is a, an homage to the phonetic Kabbalah, that version of Kabbalah. Like I said, there are some intricacies 
slight differences, subtle nuances in spellings here. Now, by and large, most people who teach about Kabbalah, like this Colville guy, lump it all together as the same thing, the various spellings of it, and don't pay close attention to that. But you see how there's these various categories, and I think the different spellings relate to some of these various categories. So, that being the case, we could see some of those distinctions being made here. But we're going to continue on. I want to cover a little bit more here, because next we're going to cover the inner significance of the 22 letters comprising the Hebrew alphabet. Many and highly ingenious have been the occult and mystical meanings given to each and all of the 22 letters which constitute the Hebrew alphabet by students of Kabbalistic lore. And while some are undoubtedly far-fetched and fanciful, we may reasonably decide that there is some solid foundation for many of the traditional values assigned them. The first letter, Aleph, like the Greek Alpha, the letter A as we know it today, signifies the primal one, the great original whence all phenomena proceed. Letters, according to all, all Kabbalists, are not looked upon as arbitrary characters artificially invented, but as thought pictures, symbolically expressive of mental states, too profound to be stated in words. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So those letters that you form on the page, the reason that they got the shape they did, it's not an arbitrary reason, it's not just random happenstance. It's like a sort of thought picture, according to the teachings of Kabbalah, and that makes sense. If you look at the letter A, if you turn it upside down, it kind of looks like an ox head, right? And that's one of the attributions given to A, the ox head, the ox. With that being the case, you can understand kind of what's being done here. It's a very primitive part of the human brain. It's something archetypal that kicks in with the shapes and forms of these various letters, numerals, symbols as they were. So we see here, he says that sometimes it's too profound to be stated in words. So the, the letter itself has a lot of nuance of meaning to it when you look at it and know how to read between the lines with all of it. Let's continue on. Each letter, then, can stand alone with a distinctive value, like a figure, and we know that in Hebrew there are no figures apart from letters, each letter having its definite numerical value. As Aleph literally means an ox, it has often been astrologically associated with the sign Taurus, the bull. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So absolutely, we see the crossover into the zodiac, the sky clock, the associations made here with the sky, with the heavens. Let's continue on. A has stood in Hebrew as the first letter of one of the names applied to deity, and it's spelled A-H-I-H, signifying I am, or underived being, the source and permanent support of all manifest existence. All Kabbalists declare that God is partly concealed and partly revealed. The letter A denotes revelation and also signifies strength, unity, and concord. going to pause for a moment right here, folks. So you see that if you look at the letter A, it's basically the two lines that connect together at the top, right? Forms almost like the, the peak of a triangle, denoting 
strength revelation and it's got the line going across the middle which represents unity and concord so it's it's interesting how when you look at the letters and understand their symbols and there's something deeper within the letter that can be garnered from just the value we assign to it in words it gives you a better context for for looking at things more nuance in meaning that's been lost to modern society or to people who don't try to maybe extricate all the layers of meaning out of a thing. So the letter A in and of itself has a lot of a lot of different signification to it. There's a lot of associated concepts with it. The ox, Taurus, the bull, the zodiacal sign, strength, unity. Think about that. So when you see the letter A next time, and understand that it has all these connotations inherently designed into it, it gives you a more of an appreciation for language, for the written word, doesn't it? And that's a hugely important thing, because we have the, the spoken word and the written word, and oftentimes... There's nuance to be found in both that can't be found in the other. If you get what I'm saying. Like there's nuance in the spoken language that can't be conveyed in a written form. And there's nuance in the written language that can't be conveyed in a spoken form. So when you combine these two things, you're giving yourself a true tool in being able to convey various meanings to convey various ideas, you see. So let's continue on. I hope that made sense. <laughs> Sometimes I have a hard time expressing what my thought is. But uh, let's get back to it. The second letter, Beth, or B, means radically a house or home and is said to refer allegorically to that inner chamber or closet into which a master invites his disciples to enter for private prayer. This is none other than the interior sanctuary of human nature, the veritable heart, which must be kept with all possible diligence, because out of it proceed all the issues of life. Heart and ark have the same meaning in the Kabbalah, this explains the extreme reverence shown to the Holy Ark whenever it is referred to in the Hebrew Scriptures. Beth is also regarded as the primal mother, Aleph being the father. It refers, moreover, to acquisition. So we're going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the letter B represents motherhood, the mother figure. Aleph being the father, and it says it refers, moreover, to acquisition also represents the holy ark, represents the heart. So the letter B has all these different underlying meanings to it, right? Has all these hidden attributes to it. Let's continue on. The third letter, Gimel, and of course we're talking the Hebrew here, which equates to the English letter G, means a camel, which suggests fortitude and wondrous power of endurance, for that strange animal, familiarly known as the ship of the desert, can endure hardships and privations that no other quadruped could sustain. 
Hieroglyphically, this letter signifies a half-closed hand extended to grasp whatever may be needed for its own sustenance. So let's pause there for a second. The letter G represents a closed hand, a half-closed hand, extended to grasp whatever may be needed for its own sustenance, for its owner's sustenance. So remember that next time you see the letter G that represents a half-closed hand grasping for something, G to grasp. You see, it's amazing how all this stuff ties together. And this is a lot of the subtle nuance that's lost just in the everyday bump and grind of life that we have, right? When we go about our day, we read something and we don't pay real attention to the letters. We just pay attention to the words. And the letters convey meaning of their own. And sometimes it's lost to those that don't take the time to maybe read into the minutiae being presented. Because that's not something we do in the outside world. That's not something the profane do. But it is something that serious occultists do. They look for the hidden nuance of meaning with this stuff. And they choose their words carefully. They choose their symbols that they use carefully. Their letters and numbers that they use in a project or a story or some such means of communication. They choose it carefully to convey different ideas that they know here. Let's continue on, though. The fourth letter, Daleth, or D, means a door or gateway. An early form of this letter was a triangle, the shape of a tent door, which form is preserved in Greek in the shape of the letter delta. As we study the accounts in various sacred writings of buildings said to have been constructed under divine direction, according to the various Bibles of the world, we find that each of them had but a single door. This fact is regarded by Kabbalists as a matter of profound significance, and occultists of many schools say that it refers definitely to a sole method of initiation into the greater mysteries. Daleth is mystically connected with the soul of the universe, on a purely physical plane, it denotes the womb, or matrix, throughout nature. It is also associated with the ideas of strength and grandeur. So the letter D, folks, represents the matrix, or the womb. Could you make the connection when you, you actually see the letter D, the capital D, what it looks like? It, you could see how it could be connected to the idea of a womb. And also remember... Delta, the, the letter delta in the Greek, the triangle, also relates to the door. And it's no coincidence that the word door starts with the letter D, right? Let's continue on. The fifth letter, he, which relates to the English E, means a window. But it also refers to aspiration or ascending breath. The full significance of this letter is said to be an established dual base in which masculinity and femininity are united in perfect equilibrium, constituting, therefore, a foundation which cannot be removed. So let's pause for a moment there. Let's think about the letter E. It's a dual base in which masculinity and femininity are united in perfect equilibrium. And we see that based upon the symbol itself. Don't we? You, you could understand that context being shown there. Its relation to a window or ascending breath, as they call it here, perfect equilibrium. Equilibrium, which not coincidentally starts with the letter E. It's a foundation which cannot be removed. 
Well, there's many words that we form in the English language that you can't remove the letter E from or it's not the word anymore. It's a commonly used letter, isn't it, that's necessary to the communication of the correct word. So it's a foundation which can't be removed. Let's continue on, though. The sixth letter, Vav, or the V, means a hook or a peg, something upon which something else may be hung. The meaning extends to a central support. Symbolically, Vav, or Vau, relates to beauty, charity, and love. Astrologers often associate it with Taurus and speak of it in connection with cervical strength. And as the neck unites the head with the rest of the body, vow has mentioned with valve and mystically referred to as the blending point between upper and lower manas in our interior consistency. So it's this symbol that represents all these various things. The point at the bottom connecting the upper and the lower. The seventh letter, Zion, or Z, means radically a sword or any sort of weapon, but hieroglyphically it stands for an arrow. Being the seventh letter, many have been the sacred ideas associated with it, and frequently it is referred to as a sign of spiritualized or regenerated humanity. Persons familiar with the tarot will find close connection between Zion and the chariot in which rides the conqueror, crowned with a diadem on which are placed three golden pentagrams, while above his head is an azure star-decked canopy. The equivalent Greek letter, Zeta, means something sought and obtained, showing a close relationship in this, as in many other instances between the Greek and Hebrew alphabets. The eighth letter, Heth, or H, means a field, or in somewhat wider significance, any definite place surrounded by a hedge or fence. Owing to its close alliance with Ha, meaning a hook, some commentators have attached the meaning also to it. It has also been connected etymologically with the Arabic word Kaf, which signifies something that has descended or been poured down. From these distinct but nearly related meanings, this letter has been spoken of as indicating in some manner the power of mind over matter, or of the higher over the lower planes of human intellect. Poetical writers who delight in drawing out the utmost meaning possible from Hebrew letters have taken advantage of the idea of the octave note in connection with this eighth letter in the sacred alphabet and have associated Heth with the New Jerusalem and with the Garden of Hesperides, wherein are gathered together the numberless souls of the righteous who have passed through Libra, the seventh zodiological sign, and have thereby attained to the eminence of an equal liberated estate in consciousness. The ninth letter, Teth, or T, literally signifies a serpent, and as ninth is the highest of our single numerals, and the serpent is allegorically an emblem of great and universal importance in the history of human regeneration, because all that the serpent stands for must be lifted up by a transmutative process in order that regeneration may be completed. Much value is attached by Kabbalists to this letter. The Greek equivalent letter, Theata, 
or theta, meaning a servant, truly explains the rightful place of the reptilian element in human economy. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. The reptilian element. Notice the language here. <laughs> Did you wonder where the reptilian idea came from? Well, it comes directly out of Kabbalah. And it's not what you think. There's not aliens from outer space who are lizard people running the place. That's not what it means. But it, it, it signifies the snake or the serpent, an important concept here. The number nine represents that in many ways. So let's continue on here. So it says, The Greek equivalent letter, theta, meaning a servant, truly explains the rightful place of the reptilian element in human economy. All that the serpent connotes must be rendered subservient to the higher principle in humanity. And when this right relatedness is accomplished, the serpent force, which works so much havoc when dominating or uncontrolled, becomes a valuable and necessary base upon which a glorious superstructure of noble character and high achievement can be upraised. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The serpent force... Remember that term, the serpent force. This is the animalistic nature of man. The materialist nature of man showing manifestation. So when we hear of, like, say, some of these elites in the power circles, when they're thought of as being reptilian or when we have these claims made that they're they're reptilians or some such thing this simply means that they're drawing people into the hyper materialist paradigm drawing people backwards into their animal nature that's what that means so when they're talking about the serpent force this is the this is the portion of the human psyche which relates back to these animalistic tendency, the animal nature. And when we give in to this, we are bound ever more into the hyper-materialist viewpoint. And this is something that's represented by this, this trope out there in conspiracy circles where they claim that these, you know, over, we have these overlords that are reptilians or something. Or that some of these famous people are, are shape-shifting reptiles and that kind of thing. All this is designed to do is to trap you in the materialist paradigm. That's what it's about. It's about trapping man in this animalistic nature. Trapping man into thinking in strictly physical, material world terms of these things. And they have a good laugh at you about that. These people in positions of power. These dark occultists who run things. It's to lead you off the trail, to get you to buy into the hyper-materialist paradigm, to get you to think that this is all there is. This physical, material world in which we live, this is all there is. There's nothing beyond it. There's no God. There's none of that. But there are, there are certainly aliens, right? I mean, that would certainly, uh, you know, back up the story that there's all these planets and stuff and that, you know, 20 billion years ago, nothing exploded and became everything and hold up this whole evolutionary theory and Big Bang and all of the nonsense they teach us, all the space nonsense, all these things they want you to believe, 
that would certainly back that up, wouldn't it? If, uh, you know, somehow these mysterious people who run the world, if they were these shape-shifting reptilian aliens, well, that would help trap people in this materialist way of thinking, wouldn't it? That this, this is all there is, that that's the explanation. It's the aliens, right? They're, they're doing this to us because they're not like us. They're not, you know, human beings like us. They're reptiles. See that? They're reptilians. And this is a nod and a wink at the serpent force idea when it comes down to brass tacks. So this has been perpetrated on those in, you know, these special interest groups, these people that are truth seekers, conspiracy theorists, whatever you want to call these people that search through this stuff. This is a nudge and a wink to those people. They have a good laugh at you in regards to this. So if you buy into that whole notion of things, uh, that's all this is. It's a nod to the serpent force idea. To the entrapment of the human mind into the materialist paradigm even further. But let's continue on. I don't think we're going to get through all of these. The tenth letter, Iod, or I, means the hand. It has been designated to the or designated the head of the fourth triad from unity and the culmination of the spherotic series. It has also been declared that from Heth, all other Hebrew letters proceed. It represents both the origin and synthesis of forces. Therefore, it symbolizes spiritual perfection. So the letter I represents spiritual perfection, the capital I. Think about that. This letter, which denotes the hand, is naturally associated in an idea with an extension of the active principle of life in all directions. Its Greek equivalent, iota, stands for the lowest of one series and the highest of another. As the number 10 and its multiples occupy so extremely exalted a place in the esteem of Kabbalists, the first 10 letters of the alphabet are considered much richer in primal significance than the remaining 12, but each of those has a distinct value worthy of careful consideration. So we see here the first 10 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that we've gone through. They have a lot of distinction to them, a lot of different meaning and nuance, and they consider these the most important ones. Now, if you're interested in further looking at this stuff, it does go through the other 12 letters here. I don't think we're going to have time for it here tonight. But it is an interesting read, and it gives you an introduction to the idea of some of the significance of Kabbalah and how having a basic understanding of it, at least these aspects of it, looking at the the nuance of meaning that's hidden within the letters and numbers themselves, and understanding that there is hidden esoteric meaning in them and that it's put there on purpose to communicate through this secret language of symbology to the various initiates of the various orders, certain ideas. When you begin to realize that and understand that many of the things we see in media are carefully worded, carefully constructed, with letters and numbers in mind as communication faculties, using some of these Kabbalic ideas and principles and attributions of the meanings of the symbols. When you begin to understand that, you get a greater grasp of what exactly is being communicated when you can learn to decipher this 
And it can be time-consuming, let's be honest, especially if you're not really as familiar with it as some of these people in the occult fraternities are. It might take a little time to really digest what's going on there. So when we see all this stuff encoded, and they particularly like to use news stories, number 33 turns up a lot, doesn't it? And we, we all understand that. That's just the Masonic connection. That's their fingerprint they put on it. The, the Masons, we did this. We're Masonic, we're Masons. This is our story. And we see that, and we're familiar with some of these more common things. But there's more nuanced stuff that's hidden in there, too. And we've only just begun to pick these things apart. It's an understanding that you come to when you begin to be able to see the symbols and understand the, the synchromystic connections that the symbols make to the story itself. This is the way that they implant archetypal thoughts into the minds of the people that are viewing it in some ways because the letters themselves represent archetypal things. Like the letter A, like I said, you'll look at that Something primal in your mind will recognize the letter A and associate it with the ox or the bull. Might not go all the way consciously there. You might not recognize it consciously, but the unconscious part of your mind recognizes the symbol, sees the letter A. Consciously you think that's a letter A and it's in part of a word, like say it's in the word part, right? Part, P-A-R-T, part. So you're thinking, okay, it's just part of the word. You're not really concentrating on the letter. But somewhere in the unconscious part of your mind, your mind will see that and recognize it as Taurus, the bull, the ox, the energetic principle associated with that, the archetype associated with that, the primal thought going back to that, the strength idea going back to that. And when you could understand some of this nuance and put it together with the other portions of a story you could see how oftentimes they'll reinforce ideas through the use of careful wording by using particular letters or numbers or symbols to reinforce or reify certain concepts or ideas in the mind to keep the mind attuned to whatever it is that intention that they want to put out there with this so this is a known commodity. This is an admitted commodity here by the occultists, and we see that right here in Colville's writing. He admits to that readily, that the secret societies, they do this. They use this these Kabbalic principles to convey ideas, and they're out there in the open. Open secrets out there for anybody to look at. Hiding in plain sight, it's always been there. We're just way behind because we haven't been clued in unless you've been initiated into the highest, most orders of these occult fraternities. You haven't been clued into any of this stuff. So you wouldn't notice that perhaps there's something underneath, hidden, in the messaging there to reinforce some certain intention or agenda. Wouldn't know what to look for. And that's why it's important that we take a look at this stuff. And as I always caution you, you do need to take this stuff with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove a lot of the things that they claim here. But when you understand what it is they're doing, how they use these symbols and have these 
understandings of what these symbols mean and can convey different nuance of idea with them to other initiates in the various orders. It's a type of secret communication. And it's also a poke in the eye for people. Because sometimes they'll, like I said, they'll reinforce ideas by using certain symbols to affect your mind on an unconscious level, which will eventually affect your conscious behavior. And you don't recognize it. Not consciously anyway, but the archetype is there, and your unconscious mind will recognize it. Because you haven't been trained, you haven't been taught this stuff. This is the kind of stuff they've kept hidden from us. The origins of our very language. The origins of our very language. The foundation upon which all languages are built. These kind of things. And it's hugely important. And we've come so far in society, we've been so dumbed down as to the nuance of language, especially in the English language. We've lost so much so much nuance of meaning in the language, like other languages, some of the Romance languages, as they're called, French, Spanish, Portuguese, these types of languages, Italian, they have, within their speech, within the way they speak, different objects are assigned gender through these objects. That's something that's lost in the English language, like La Mesa. In Spanish, the table. Well, table has a feminine attribute to it. La mesa in Spanish. We don't have that nuance of language in English, where we've lost a lot of that. It's been deliberately dumbed down. That's what's happened to our language over time. And we see that with text speak now. LOL. You see, all of this stuff, it's, it's designed that way on purpose. We're supposed to be dumbed down to be more easily controlled. And they want us to have poor communication skills with one another, to miss all this nuance in the symbolism that they use. They don't want us to understand it. Because if we do, well, then they can't pull off the crap they want to pull off, can they? <laughs> if we see what they're doing, if the writing's on the wall, they put it out there in the open... If you can't read it, though, what good is it? Right? It's like putting up a sign for the blind. Menus available inside. Picture menus or something. For those that can't read, I can, this is something that I always found ironic. Some restaurants will put on their, their big menu board, picture menus available. <laughs> they put it up there purposely for those people who can't read. And so how are they supposed to read picture menus available? Same kind of concept going on here, right? So they'll tell you out there, hidden in plain sight, what they're doing, but you just can't read it because you don't read that language. But it's there, nonetheless. Well, we're, we're trying to give each ourselves the, the picture menu here, folks. That's what this is all about. Uh, I'm doing my best, and I know there's others. We're trying to do our best here to communicate these ideas, these different nuances we see in, in what's going on with things in the world, in how these occultists, these dark occultists that run things operate. Doing our best to reverse engineer that and figure it out. We're still in the diaper-wearing phase, though, as it were. But a little at a time, I think we're getting there. Learning to subtly translate 
some of what's been done to us over the course of millennia now. Understand how it's used today. And I assure you it is used today. And a lot of it falls back on some of these Kabbalic ideas, as it were. And it all has to do with this nuance of language, with the, the roots of our language. That's why etymology is an important practice. Learning the meanings of names, where they came from, what their original meaning was. And when you do that, it opens up a new world of understanding to you for what's been done. Gives you a little bit more information or context into the things that are done in this world and the reasons and intentions why. Things like, uh, well, let's use an example here. We'll look at the name Kennedy. Kennedy is derived from a Gaelic name, which means ugly head wound. I kid you not. So that information is lost on the bulk of humanity, but uh, it was designed... This whole The whole ritual was designed around that theme, to put it mildly. So this is the kind of stuff they've pulled on us for the longest time. And when we have a better understanding of it, well, it doesn't affect us as much. Or we can see the writing on the wall and understand what's being done, that oftentimes it's a put-up or it's an agenda that's being performed against us. Not for our best interests, but for the select interests of a small group at the top of the power pyramid here in this world. Anyway, so that's the whole crux here. So I wanted to explore a little bit of Kabbalah. Understand, if you, if you don't take anything else away from this, understand much of what has to do with Kabbalah is word origins, the use of letters and numbers and symbols in various ways to communicate ideas, antiquated old ideas that have been lost to the modern age. And that's why it's important to trace things back to their roots. And some of the Kabbalah has put forth templates here, showing the meanings of various letters and numbers in their teachings. And this is used by them as a communication tool today. So understand that, learn to read between the lines, and see the nuance in their communication. Look at the minutiae of details. Look at the letters. Look at the numbers. Look at the strings of words they put together. Look at the symbols they invoke in their speech. And understand a lot of it is there for a reason, and it's not by accident. And they still use this concept today. This is not something relegated to the past, folks. They still do it today. And it's all over the place. So I hope this was informative for you. And I want to let you all know that I appreciate each and every one of you that listens on a regular basis. And I truly mean that from the bottom of my heart. And I wish you all a good night. We'll catch you next time. Come with me.
me. 